may be seated. We turn this evening in God's Word to the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be reading the first seven verses tonight of Hebrews chapter 11, although our text tonight is really only verse 1 of that passage, but we see examples of the faith that is being spoken of in verse 1 as we continue to make our way uh, through the Old Testament folks that are mentioned. Hebrews 11, beginning to read at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now, Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Thus far the reading of God's word, and let's again bow in prayer tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we understand this importance that the faith plays in our life. We think of the Philippian jailer who was told, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we read here the many examples of faith, the faith that was also followed up by action. We ask that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this passage to us. We ask this in your name, amen. And amen. Well, as the bulletin indicates, and obviously as uh, we read Article 1 of the Confession of Faith uh, tonight, we begin a new series of messages. Uh, uh, I had asked the elders uh, a couple of months ago already that uh, I wanted to do a series. I felt it was time. It had been a while since we had had a series uh, going through uh, one of the Reformed creeds as far as... Uh, um, what we understand to be the Reformed faith, um, tossed it out there, and uh, I wouldn't say there was consensus of opinion, but uh, there, there was not uh, 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 bickering or fighting over 
the decision that uh, perhaps it would be a good idea as it perhaps has been a long time since many of us have gone through uh, the Belgic Confession of Faith. And so uh, that is what is going to be our, uh, our study point, although that's not our sermon text. Uh, our sermon text is the Word of God. The, the, the author of the Belgic Confession would himself probably turn over in the grade if, if I preach the text of the Confession and not the text of Scripture. Although, I, I must tell you, sometimes that's hard to do. That, that's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's pretty easy to fall back into going to the text of the document rather than the text of Scripture. But we will certainly seek to use this as the guide of where are we going this week? Well, what does God's Word say about this subject? What does God's Word teach us? And then how do we summarize it as we find it in the Belgic Confession. Now, having said all that, okay, I, I am basically going to break that rule tonight. Because when you start a sermon series, there is always some, some I, I refer to them as sort of the logistics. There's the nuts and bolts of things. When you go back and think about when we started Galatians, there's just some certain things that stand in the background that if we're going to understand the book of Galatians, we need to know. We need to know that Paul has been in Galatia. We know that this was his first missionary trip. We, we need to know what happened in these various towns and cities. We need to know what, what has taken place. We need to know how long Paul has been gone. We need to know what happened between Paul's last visit and then those new uh, teachers coming into town and the problems. Else we're just going to read and we're going, what, what's going on here? So we have to have some basis out of which we, we seek to understand this. And the same is true when, when you know, we, we go through one of our reform creeds. There is some background here that we need to understand to help put in perspective this document of faith. So first of all, let me share with you briefly three quick things about the history of the Belgic Confession. First, it is written in 1561. At least that's when they believe the first copies appeared. 1561 A.D. Secondly, it is written by a man by the name of Guido de Bray. Um, kind of interesting. It, it seems to be the day of former Roman Catholics here at Little Farms because that's what the Bray was. He was born and raised in a very strict Roman Catholic family um, and was so until about the age of 24, which is also for you high schoolers an interesting time, isn't it? Because that's what we heard this morning as well. But at about the age of 24, he is converted to, to Protestantism and then uh, makes his way through various preachers to come to an understanding of what was then being expressed as the Reformed faith that had not yet, in a sense, been documented into a creed or a confession. But he understands it as that which is the Reformed faith. He is trained in the ministry in both London and in Geneva. 
He eventually serves a church in Dornick, the Netherlands. And at the age of 55, he dies as a martyr for the faith on May 31st, 1567, by hanging. Hanged by the government and the Roman Catholic Church. Because of this document. He wrote the document back in 1561, just six years then before his death, to defend those who were followers of Christ under the banner of the Reformed faith king of France at that particular time, who happens to be King Charles of Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, emperor at the time. It is to explain to him, look, we who live in the lowlands, we who live in the area that presently we call Belgium and the Netherlands, those lands that sit, as it were, below the sea, the lowlands. We who are followers of the Reformed faith are not heretics. We are not seeking to cause a rebellion. We are seeking to live in peace and harmony in the land in which God has placed us, but we seek to live that under the banner of the Word of God as understood by the Reformed faith. Obviously, it didn't go over real well. We could say it was not a real great defense. In that, as I have already said, it's that which leads to his death. A few notes on the history. Secondly, What is the importance of this particular document? I mean, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism. We have the, the Canons of Dort, and we have, as, as well, the Heidelberg Catechism. We, we have many other reform confessions, creeds, and catechisms that have been written over the course of time in various places on earth. What is the importance of this one? Let me give you three. One, it is the oldest of the Reformed statements. It is the oldest. Now, it's not the oldest of writings. It's not that, obviously, Calvin is writing before this, along with many others are are writing, but nobody at, up until 1561 has sat down and said, this is what we of the Reformed faith believe. This becomes the first then document reproduced out of the Reformed faith to give us a concise way of understanding that which the Bible teaches. There is some 
importance associated with that, even as when we have done the Westminster, I have noted to you there is some importance over the lateness of its writings. The fact that it kind of comes last gives it the perspective to look over everything else. The fact that the Belgic comes first, it doesn't have that. It's not like the break go, let me see, what did they write in the catechism? How do I want to phrase that? Now, what did they write in that Westminster Confession article, you know, 20 anyway? Let me, let, me, let me glance at that and use that. He doesn't have that. So out of, out of that, we get a very, I, I would say, and I don't mean this negatively, a very simple, straightforward expression of our Reformed faith. Secondly, of all of the Reformed documents that have been written, that have been produced, this by far is the costliest. Oh, not in terms of the money it took to print it. This was costly in terms of human life. The conservative estimate is tens of thousands of people die. The more realistic is that well over a hundred thousand brothers and sisters of the Reformed faith died because they owned a copy of this document. They had this in their possession. And because this was in their possession, whether the whole, whether part, whether just a snippet, or whether they were asked and it was put to them, do you adhere to the statements that Debray has made? It cost them their lives. Others may have been persecuted. There may have been other deaths associated with those who, who have written, those who, who have expressed the Reformed faith by other creeds and by other confessions or catechisms. But they pale in comparison to the number of people who died because they said, we believe. It is the costliest. Under Charles of France and the Holy Roman Empire, under the inquisition of the Catholic Church that was enforced and given the responsibility, or I should perhaps put it this way, they were given the authority to do whatever they desired to do against someone they suspected of being reformed. Death for some was too good compared to the inventions of torture that the Roman Catholic Church came up with in its inquisition, not just against Protestants, but against people who adhered to 
the Reformed faith. See, the Inquisition was designed against Belgium and the Netherlands. It was to bring them into submission. And if we're going to bring them into submission, we need to get rid of this thing called the Reformed faith. And to get rid of the faith, we need to get rid of the people. And we ought to step back from this document. And in a sense, we need to respect that. We need to, we need to respect it, not, not, not worship, not venerate it, but respect it in the sense of there must really be something here. This must really be important. If people are going to die for what is expressed in these various articles, which brings me to the third point in regards to its importance, and that's its relevance. This is a very relevant document. Partly, and, and maybe even more so, because of that history. Because of that history, in the day and age in which we live, this becomes even more crucial for us to know and us to understand. I think I expressed this at, at Bible study uh, this week uh, once already, but it bears repeating. When someone on the public airwaves in the United States of America can mock a praying vice president, we live in a day and age in what do you think they think about the rest of what we believe? If prayer leads them to mock us, what do you think is going to be the result of the rest of these articles? What do you think about this expression, there is only one God? <laughs> that would be laughed out of every public university there is in the United States. You can't say that, Pastor. You'll offend every follower of Islam. You can't say that, Pastor. You'll follow every follower of Hinduism. No, we believe. We believe. But you see, it's relevant not only because of that secularism of our society that we see in so many different ways and so many different aspects so many incongruities of, of, of how the world thinks spiritually. But you see, there's also that rise of Islam. As we were reminded in Octavio this morning, the fact that basically Europe is now a Muslim state. think's actually going to happen when they get power? What do you think actually is going to happen now that their numbers are swelling when they actually take hold of the governments? What do you think is going to happen to Christians? What do you think is going to happen to anybody who says, no, I follow the Belgic confession of faith. This is my statement of faith. 
What do you think is going to happen if you live in Dearborn and you seek to be a reformed Christian? See, this is relevant stuff. Not only for us, but certainly for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world of the reformed faith. They face the real persecution. And then, of course, there's the rise of the cults, the day and age in which we live. Many, sadly, even of good, solid, reformed churches, could not carry on a conversation with a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness to save their life. They have no clue what is going on. They have no clue what the discussion is. They have no clue what the doctrine is behind this. Oftentimes, they, they come to the door and they try the argument and then they go, blah, 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 blah. they know more than I do. Shame that we should ever come to that conclusion, right? That we would have to acknowledge that the follower of some cult knows more about their cult than we do about the Christian faith as it's expressed in Reformed doctrine. Do you even know what it means to be Reformed? Oh, I'm not asking that of Little Farms. That's more the general question to the Reformed church in the, in the United States. Do we even know anymore what it means to be reformed? Well, you see, it all starts with Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith. Yes, faith. Keep your finger at Hebrews chapter 11. Go back to page 70. This is an interesting perspective. One that actually, until I read through the Confession of Faith and then was reading some articles about it, I actually had never noticed about this document. Just page through. I'm not going to bother to read through them all. Just page through the first two, three words of every article. And note how most of them the majority of them begin. You can just go ahead and page through. And you know what words come back? We believe. We believe. There's an important distinction. The Heidelberg Catechism is a very personal document. Okay, right? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul. Wonderful, beautiful expression. What's the difference? In the Belgic confession of faith, it's we, it's together, it's us. It's not just me, it's me and you. It's all of us as Reformed believers. This is what we believe. This is what we accept as the truth. This is what the church, under the banner of the Reformed faith, believes and accepts as that which God's Word teaches. We believe 
third point, the opening of the Belgic Confession. Of so many of those articles, we believe. And you see, what we have to understand is that to believe is to have faith. The Greek word for faith is, is pistis. It means to be persuaded. When someone has faith in something, okay, just take it out of the spiritual realm. When someone has faith in something, some object, okay, it is because they have been persuaded by some evidence or by some individual of something being true. So, this is probably not the greatest example, but we'll use it. Can I go out on the ice? Well, I was out there this morning, and it held me. I saw somebody out there snowmobiling. I see three or four ice shanties out there. I see three, four men walking out on that ice to their ice shanty. I am persuaded now that I can walk out on the ice. I can have that faith. Now you might say, Pastor, there's some other factors, aren't there? Sure there are. When it comes to worldly things, because we live in a world of sin. But you see, Hebrews 1 is not talking about faith in ice to go ice fishing. Hebrews 1, 11, 1 is talking about spiritual faith. Well, what, is, what makes spiritual faith different than the faith about the ice? God persuades me. That's what faith is. It's God's persuading. I don't have faith because somebody else. See, I can't give faith to somebody else. You can't give faith to somebody else. Only God can. We'll come to that part of it in a, in a minute as well. But it's, it's being persuaded by God. See, faith is God coming to us and persuading us of what? Of truth. When these reformers, these people of the reformed faith, when Debray is, is, is working on this, it's we believe. We believe. We have faith. We accept this true. Why? Because God has persuaded us of this truth. See, this isn't a pope telling me. And I'd have all sorts of questions about that. This isn't the pastor telling me. I'd have all sorts of questions about the pastor. See, that's why the preaching of God's word is never about the person. preaching of God's word is always about God. Spirit taking that which is preached to our hearts 
into our lives. It's God persuading us. It's God persuading us with the foolishness of the cross. That's what faith is. God's persuading of you and I. And this confession of faith is about having been persuaded by God through His Word, by His Spirit, of that which is true. And so convinced are they of that, they will die for it. They'll die for it. They'll be tortured for it. They'll have their tongues ripped out for it. They'll have their eyes gouged out for it. They'll watch the death of their children for it. Because the faith is not in the church. Faith came from God who has persuaded them. That's why there's, there's, there's almost a silliness, isn't there, about, about you know, saying something about, well, I was almost persuaded by God to be a Christian. How does God almost persuade? How does the almighty God, how does the incomprehensible God fail to persuade you? How, how would that work? I am, he, here he is, he's God, all power, eternal. Boy, he wants to persuade you, he wants you to be a Christian, but I failed, just couldn't quite get to your heart. Man, you're so strong, you're so powerful, your heart withstood me. How silly. Do you think there is one single heart that God desires to persuade that he in the fullness of his being cannot persuade. We believe. We are persuaded by God himself of these glorious truths. Faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance sometimes perhaps throws us a little bit and maybe we go off in, in wrong tangents about it. So, so let's get back to a, perhaps a little clearer understanding of what we mean by insurance. It means that we stand under God's guaranteed agreement. It means that we stand under God's guaranteed covenant. Faith is standing under God's certain and sure promise to us in Christ. The word of God become flesh. Assurance is the idea of having that which is a solid foundation upon which to build our lives. A solid foundation of truth. Faith is having a solid foundation upon which truth 
and our lives can be built. Assurance here, you see, isn't how I feel. That isn't what is meant here. Faith is the assurance. Faith is how strong I feel. You know, when you go into the hospital or when you get the call from the hospital about going into surgery, that's always the question, right? Could you, could you tell me how you feel right now? Well, what do you mean by that? Could you rate your pain? On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you? Right? So we hear this, okay, and we're going, oh, assurance must work like pain. Sometimes I can be a 1, sometimes I could be a 5, sometimes I'm a 10 in terms of my assurance. No. There is no scale in terms of assurance. Because assurance is the foundation of God. It's not me. Faith is that which God grants me to know that he has established a solid foundation. In his word, in his son. How do you think it is that, that where we were this morning in Galatians 6 and last week, how is it you think Paul could stand up and say, I boast only in the cross of Christ? Well, today I feel pretty strong about that. Ask me tomorrow, I don't know. Maybe tomorrow I'll be a little... No, you see, that's assurance because he knows that that's the truth. That is the foundation. God's guaranteed promise to you and I. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the conviction of, of that which, which, in a sense, we cannot see with our eyes. I mean, I can't see God's eternal being with my eyes. I can't see God's holiness with my eyes. Conviction is to have faith to be persuaded by God himself of the truth that isn't even before my eyes. See, faith is the opposite of Thomas. I'll believe if you show me. No, faith is I believe even if I never see it. Because God told me. Because God told me, I am absolutely sure that he exists, that he has spoken, that he has redeemed, and that he will fulfill all of his word. Where does that now come from? Well, you see, if you spend some time in a library with a lot of theological books, you reach that conclusion. Actually, that's probably not true because it seems like an awful lot of people I know who spend a lot of time with theology books end up on the other side of the spectrum of this. They end up asking all sorts of questions they shouldn't be asking because they read too much. They want to go beyond faith to reason. Dido Debray did not begin every article with, we reasoned that. We have determined that. We have come to the conclusion that. We have voted this to be the truth. No, we believe. I not only have the assurance of that solid foundation in God's great covenant in Christ, 
I have the conviction of that. Where did that come from? It comes from God. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2. Go down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now think, what is faith? Faith is God persuaded me. In grace... God persuaded me. In grace, God sent his Holy Spirit into my heart, into your heart, to persuade us of the absolute, solid foundation of Christ's covenant with us as a solid promise upon which we can accept as truth, and I am fully convinced of that by faith, God's persuasion. God is the one who has persuaded. God is the one who has given conviction. God is the one who has given us that assurance. God. And this not your own doing. Oh, this isn't something I studied for and got the conclusion. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works. See, I didn't work so hard and read so hard. I came to the conclusion. This is the gift of God. That's why those hundred thousand plus individuals are willing to die. It isn't that they all had great degrees and huge libraries. Might be that by 1567, most of them didn't even have a scripture yet. But they had a copy of this. And they said, from what our pastor has been preaching from the pulpit, from the Bible, we believe this to be the truth. Ordinary people like you and I, farmers, laborers, ice skaters, Muck diggers, housewives, bakers, custodians. See, all of our last names, for those of us who are Dutch and Belgian. See, it isn't that we studied, it isn't that our ancestors. 
are any different than us. But they had received the very same thing you and I have. A gift. A gift from God. A gift that was given to us not because of our works, not because of who we are or what we've done, not because we did so many rose Hail Marys or we kissed the feet of the Virgin Mary so many times, not because we went to Mass five times a week, not because we went to confessional. No, God gave it to us as a gift. What did he give to you? He gave faith. God persuaded my heart. As God has persuaded your heart. That's not the question for tonight. The question for tonight is, would you die for it? They weren't. I wonder what's in this document that was so important that they're willing to die. Their faith wasn't different than your and my faith. Was it? Father, we must confess that there are times when we do have to say, we have it so good here. It's one of the reasons many of our ancestors came to this land was to escape the persecution that they were facing. There were those, Father, who, who leave the, a church in the Netherlands because they didn't want to be a government church. They wanted to be free. And all the hardships they were willing to endure the persecutions they faced. Father, we sometimes do have to ask ourselves the question, for what would I die? What truth of your word would I be willing to die for? Father, it's not that we have to be some extraordinary human beings. The folks who are dying because of the Inquisition certainly were not, in that sense, extraordinary. And they have been given faith as a gift, just as we do. Lord, maybe in our study over the course of the next several months, if you bless, will lead us to a place where we too would say, I'll die for that truth so that you might be glorified, so that you might be praised, that Christ might be exalted. It's in his name we pray and God's people say, amen. Four